Well, happy, 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 happy microphone. Yes, uh, happy Advent. First, uh, well, it's actually the second week in Advent uh, for us, but this is uh, the first week that we are, are celebrating uh, this. So, uh, so glad that you're with us this morning. My name is Dwight. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, Church 21 is a church, uh, one church, but we have four different locations. And so getting to celebrate this across all our locations and for the people who are at home. And, uh, and this morning, I'm just thankful for technology. So, uh, you know, if, if I was in more of a joking mood, I would say something like, uh, what do you get when you have four little kids in winter in Montreal? Uh, you get sick parents. And so, ha ha ha, that's funny. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, I, I'm the last one in our family to have this little, this little cold. And so my family gets to uh, watch at home this morning. And so, um, so glad for technology today. Um, we are going to be in Matthew 1, as Stephen read for us this morning. So if you do have a Bible, you can open up uh, to that. And uh, season of Advent, Advent really means uh, coming. And so we, as, as followers of Jesus, uh, we look back to the first coming of Jesus, and we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. So we believe that there's two Advents, and, and we celebrate one, and we look forward to the other. And so during this season of Advent, we really want to do both of those things. We don't want to just remember when Jesus became a baby. We also want to think about when Jesus comes back as a warrior king for his people. And so we're, our aim is to do both those things uh, in this series. So let, let me pray again, and uh, we'll get going. Holy Spirit, would you uh, take over us? Um, for those who don't yet know you, uh, God, would you care for them? Would you speak to them? Uh, we all at, at one moment, whether we were a three-year-old or a, uh, a 63-year-old, at one point we were a rebel against you, and, uh, and we needed your, your grace. We needed you to come into the, the dark recesses of our life and, and shine a light and, and to, to see uh, that we weren't sufficient on our own, but, but to see that you are. And I pray that you would be uh, sufficient for us. Uh, Stephen prayed already uh, during this season that you protect our hearts against um, some of the, the, the common idols and temptations to draw our hearts away from, from you. And I, I pray that you would lock our hearts and our minds and our eyes on you this morning. I know we come in sleepy. I know some of us are experiencing uh, being more under the weather. Uh, some of us are, are dealing with seasonal affective disorder. Uh, some of us are dealing with mental health. Some of us are dealing with grief. And Jesus, I pray that you would meet us all uh, here today and that you would be seen as, as the clear and epic hero of, of this story. So we love you and need you. Amen. Um, if you've ever attempted to read the Bible uh, you, and you were to honestly admit what your experience was, you would say that there are some parts of the Bible that seem pretty boring, right? Let's just be honest. If you start in January and you're like, this is a year, I'm going to crank through, it's like you make it through Genesis, lots of fast-moving stories, you make it to Exodus, and like you might get caught up in like, why does the, the drape need to be this long or the poles need to be this long, but you're like, okay, I'm dealing with it, but then you get to Leviticus and you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore, right? It's kind of like, it feels like you're reading a recipe book, you know, for your soul, and you're like, what is going on? And so many people get stuck in, ex in Leviticus and they, and they leave that, well, this portion of scripture today, Matthew chapter 1, not the section that was read for us already by Stephen, but the one that comes before that, it, it seems a bit boring, honestly. We actually did a sermon series like seven or eight years ago on Matthew 1, 
it wasn't boring at all. We called it the naughty list, and we looked at the different people that were, that were part of that list and what God did through them. But Matthew 1 is literally a list of names. I will not read them for you. You can go home and edify yourself, encourage yourself later by reading those names. Um, but the reason why it seems boring is because we just see that. We just see names. But when you see what it really is, it becomes remarkable. When you see who's really there and what God has been doing despite those people, it's awe-inspiring to know that God uses people like this. Because all the names of Matthew 1 represent God's promises kept to his people. And so the Old Testament, the Bible is broken up into two big sections. We have the Old Testament, which is before Jesus comes, and the New Testament after Jesus does come, and the first, we have snippets of the first hundred or so years of church history, letters to the churches, encouraging them, correcting them, rebuking them, telling them how they're supposed to live now. But the Old Testament was finished hundreds of years before Jesus actually came. And the Old Testament was the people of God waiting for God to follow through with his promise. Like longing, anticipating when uh, Jess or I leave our, our house, our dog, this one-year-old, he's a very interesting dog, um, but he, he waits, he, and he does waiting in his way, uh, but he's just longing for, for us to come home, longing for us to, to come back from whatever our really long trip is to the grocery store. But this Messiah, this word Messiah, really means rescuing king. They're waiting for this rescuer, this king, this ruler that was going to come back and fulfill all of God's promises. But here's the thing. God's promises are often kept in very unexpected ways. God's promises are are kept in unexpected ways because they all had access to the Old Testament. All, All the people of God had access, and they would agree on certain things. Like they agreed that this Messiah would come from the line or the lineage of Abraham, Matthew 1 would say that. They agreed that the lineage would be of David as well. They agreed that this Messiah was going to bring his kingdom into this world. But they disagreed on how it was going to happen. Some people thought that the Messiah was going to be a political leader. The next Justin Trudeau, hopefully a little better. Um, Regardless of what you think about him, right? This Messiah is going to be the, the leader, the prime minister of all prime ministers, right? It's going to be amazing. Some thought he was going to be like a military leader and lead an army to to overthrow the Roman Empire and allow for the people of God to rise up. Some thought he was going to be a revolutionary. Some thought that he was going to be a preacher of good news. There was all kinds of disagreement on how the Messiah was going to fulfill his role. But one thing was clear. At this time, people were waiting with great anticipation for this Messiah to come. Like children throughout December, as they may or may not be sneaking peeks in at what's in the closet. Or un, I have a friend that unwrapped all of his presents and then wrapped them uh, better than his parents actually wrapped them, right? To get a peek at all the things that waited. But there was a longing of what's to come. And this is what's going on. This is what's going on inside of the people of God. And literally, everything was pointing to this moment. All of history was pointing to Jesus coming. But the thing was, this, this moment wasn't center stage. It wasn't the Stanley Cup finals. Now, if we're really honest, we know we're not going to celebrate any Stanley Cup finals this year in Montreal, unless you're a fan of some other team. 
But it, it wasn't the Stanley Cup Finals. It wasn't the Grey Cup. It wasn't uh, the voice. It wasn't this thing where someone steps into the spotlight so that everyone can see. Rather, this Messiah coming went rather unnoticed. It was more like an up-and-coming hockey player in a backyard rink in northern Saskatchewan. Right? It's more like some phenomenal singer like Adele. You know, we talked about her philosophy on marriage a few weeks ago. She has a great voice, though, so let's highlight the voice. Right? It's like her singing in a shower somewhere, being unnoticed. This is what's actually going on in this story. But for a few, and we'll look at them this morning, for a few, this would change their lives forever. It would change their lives forever. If you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've said something like this. Uh, God, would you please use me? God, would you please work in me and through me? And would you please take me wherever you want me to go? Do whatever you want to do with me. And we just have to be careful with that prayer, right? I would, I would encourage you to pray that way. But as we look at the story this morning, I, I bet none of us want this story. I bet none of us want our circumstances to work out in this way. And I assume that Mary probably prayed these types of things. God, use me. And this is who we're going to run into first in the story is Mary. Now, Mary, um, it, Hebrew weddings, Jewish weddings, had this parenthetical piece to it. You, you would be married, but not really. You wouldn't consummate the marriage. So technically you're married, but then there was this betrothal period where the man would go away and he would usually add on to his father's house and it would just become bigger and he would go and make a place for you. Uh, so he would come back and get the wife when, when he was done doing that and bring her, consummate the marriage, whole thing was done, big party, week-long celebration, amazing. So Mary was in that parenthetical piece. She already had a husband, but not yet. He hadn't finished his work and come to get her yet. So imagine being her. Imagine prepping for a wedding, prepping for a marriage. What's going on in your mind at that point? Oh, he's so handsome. I can't wait for him to come. I love watching him swing a hammer. I can't wait till we do that. Well, imagining, right? Romance. Oh, I, I can't wait to get into that new house. Oh, I can't. I can't wait for the kids that are going to come along and the friends we're going to have and when social distancing is not a thing anymore, right? Like, it's going to be incredible, right? For her, she's dreaming of this future. So exciting. And then God answers her prayer. God, would you use me? Matthew 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, on, on the surface, what appearance says is that she really wasn't living the way that God wanted her to live. Everything about her body over the course of that nine months was saying that she is not living in submission to God, Right? God, use me, but I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Everyone who would look on her uh, would, would almost put that scarlet letter on her. Or they definitely would, not almost. They would. That she would gain a certain reputation in her town. Because to be a follower of God meant that marriage is really the relationship for having kids. And I'm not going to go beyond that. You can do your own uh, life skills, life whatever courses with your kids to teach them about that. But marriage is a relationship for having 
kids. Therefore, to be unmarried or to be betrothed, that's not an arena where you're supposed to be having kids or being pregnant. Very simple. Therefore, Mary's reputation, having child, being pregnant, her reputation would have been destroyed in her village. Absolutely destroyed. And then if she told the story of what actually happened, she would seem just a little bit out there. To say it nicely, right? Like, Mary's nuts. Mary's crazy, right? God came to her and did this. Like, that's disgusting, actually. Who are you to actually think that up, Mary? Has this ever happened to you? Not, not the Holy Spirit coming upon you in that way, okay? That, this seems like it was a one-time thing. But has it ever happened to you where God seemed to place an unexplainable situation on your life? Where if you actually start to tell people about it, you seem a bit crazy. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever consent to this? Why would you ever follow through on these things? And what would have been so easy for Mary to do, and what's so easy for us to do, is to be focused on our reputation in this moment. It's to go into like PR mode, public relations. We become our, our greatest public relations person where all of a sudden we want to explain away what's actually taking place so that we don't seem crazy. But what's so interesting in this text is that it doesn't seem like God's main concern is our reputation. It doesn't seem like God's main concern is our reputation in this world. Now, I mean, I could caveat that and say a whole host of other things, but I think it'll come out as we're going through the rest of this, this text. Because God's main concern is doing what's best for him and for us. Because when God works for his best and the best way forward, it's also our best way forward, even when we don't feel like it is. Because who placed this child inside of Mary? Well, the text says that the Spirit of God did. See, he's, the Spirit is most concerned with applying the work of God in our lives. It's what he wants to do. He wants to take God, this, this unseen being, and help him be seen in our lives. He wants to take this, this being that if we were in front of him, his glory would be so great that we would just melt away. And he wants to make him palpable to us so that we can actually enjoy him without being destroyed by him. This is what the work of the Spirit is, is to highlight who God is and what he's done. And the Holy Spirit of God wants to make God famous. Even in the moments where we feel like he's let us down, even in the moments where we feel like, I don't know if this would have been the plan A that I would have chosen. Because what the Spirit of God can do is he can also change our hearts to want the thing that God is actually doing in our lives. Because our natural proclivity is that when an unexplainable situation comes or when life as we know it is going to change significantly because of what God is doing in our lives, our natural proclivity is to say, ah, oh, look at all the things that I've lost. 
Man, I love these things. I love my reputation before. I loved being the, the young married couple that was greeted and, and welcomed in by everyone in our neighborhood. I loved the security and the comfort that I had of living this type of way. I loved all these things. And when I became a follower of God or when God asked me to do these things, I lost them all. Those weren't my hope anymore. And, and our natural proclivity is to focus and obsess on the loss of those things. to meditate on the version of life that's gone, to become very myopic. But when the Spirit of God is working in our lives, look what happens. I want to read you Mary's response. Luke, uh, so Luke is, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling about the story of, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and they're taking different angles of the same story. And look at Luke Verse 35, chapter 1, verse 35. The angel answered her, because she asked, how is this going to be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, a whole other story, in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is a sixth month with her, who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And listen to what Mary said. Behold, I am really angry that you ruined my life. No. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. See, before he ever came to her, she was already ready. She was already ready to say, whatever you want to do in my life, I'm in. Doesn't matter what, what you bring. It doesn't matter what circumstances you change. I'm in. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. And then listen to what she does. She sings a song. Verse 46, and I won't read the whole thing. Verse 46 to 49. Mary said, now remember, she knows everything she's going to lose. She knows her reputation. She knows people aren't going to believe her. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. In the face of losing everything, she sings. She sings. And it's not all generations are going to call me blessed. Like, look at me and how great I am. Uh, by the way, we shouldn't pray to Mary. I'm just It's a side note. Um, this wasn't her saying, please pray to me. Please take access to God through me. That's not it at all. She's saying, I am blessed because I get to carry the Savior of the world. I am blessed because of what God is doing for me, not because of how amazing I am. I am blessed because of him and his work. What she says in this song is, I have joy Right, as I was driving in this morning, I'm like, Lord, I feel like garbage, Sudafed, please kick in, you know, work. And I'm like, we need to find a, a, a term when you can be sick and joyful. So whether it's, a, you know, joyic, I don't know. Uh, we can invent that term later. But for her, she, in the face of losing everything, there's joy. She says, I found favor with God. I found favor with him. Losing it all, but I have him. Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament and he said this, and I think this captures Mary's, Mary's heart in this song as well. 
He said in Philippians 3, 7, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish in Greek, that's the closest thing to a swear word you have in the New Testament. That's what he thinks of all the stuff that I'm counting it as loss in order that I may gain Christ. Take it all away. I just want him. This is Mary's heart. Now, I'm sure she had moments. I'm sure she had moments of of where she felt, is this really the best thing, God? You know, this actually is really painful. I, I hear what people are saying about me in the village, and, and for all of her life, she would deal with this. In fact, they, they referenced that Jesus was a, a fatherless son when he was during his ministry. So they lived with this their entire life. But in this moment, she was willing to lose everything for him. I mean, what does that say about him? What does it say about Jesus? That he is worth it. That whatever he's calling you into, he is worth it. That whatever you're, you feel is lost along the way, he is, he is worth it. Most likely, none of us will have the reputation that Mary has in our lives. And yet, at the end, she's still clinging to her son as her rescuer, saying, you are worth it. See, what happens is when we get our eyes focused on what we have in Christ, our eyes aren't on the things that we've lost. When our eyes are on what we have in him, we're no longer obsessed and meditating on all the things that we don't have because he is our surpassing value. This is why I, I tell our kids every year, just for they're about to open Christmas gifts, I'm like, this is gonna be really fun, but all these things are lame in comparison to the gift that we have in Jesus. And they're like, yes, dad. I know they just wanna get into the gift, so it's like, nod the head. We know if we just nod and don't argue, we can get on with this quicker. But I, I want for that to be burrowed deep in their hearts, you know, over time. It's not just on Christmas morning that we drop that little nugget of truth, but rather we're showing our kids that and helping them understand. And hopefully as a church, we're growing in this as well, that we're seeing that Jesus far surpasses anything that this world could give us. Some of you are, are, you can't wait for the degree that you're gonna get. Rubbish in comparison to knowing him. Some of you can't wait to be married. Rubbish in comparison to knowing him. Can't wait to have kids and actually have something in your RRSP. Rubbish in comparison to knowing him. Some of you are courted by high officials and people in lofty places. Rubbish in comparison to knowing him. This is what Mary is saying that he is my surpassing value. In that long list of names in Matthew 1, Jesus is God's promise kept. Jesus is God saying, I've kept my promise that I would send the Messiah. But his work impacted more than just Mary. So let's look at at, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, and Joseph And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We looked at divorce a few weeks ago. Um, You know, he would have handed her a certificate of divorce so that she could have remarried, that she would have been taken care of. She wouldn't have been uh, vulnerable any longer in that society. Joseph was concerned for her. 
And I assume that Joseph's heart was, was broken upon receiving this news. Because if we put our, ourselves, sometimes we read these accounts and we're just like, why didn't Joseph get it? Imagine you're going to be married and your fiance comes and says, hey, there's great news. God put a baby in my belly. All right. Like, God equals who? You know, like, you're trying to work out the math with them. Like, this, this doesn't line up because God doesn't do this. Virgins don't get pregnant. For Joseph, planning life, building that house, and then, you know, hey, Joseph, come over. We're going to do a gender reveal party. He's like, oh, cool. For who? No, for us. We haven't gone that far yet, Mary. Yes, yes, it's okay. Okay, God is with us. God is with us. He absolutely shattered dreams. Joseph was now going to enter into a position of shame as well. And sometimes we just don't enter into the story enough so that we can feel this. But his, his posture was going to be one of a broken heart and shame for the rest of his life. And the questions, I tried to put myself in Joseph's shoes this week. Here would be my questions. Why is she being so holy about this? And why is she blaming God? I would be furious. And what is it about me that wasn't good enough for her? Here I am working my butt off to build a house. I don't know how to build houses, by the way. So this would be a really incredible thing if it happened. But like I'm working my butt off, watching YouTube videos, trying to figure out how to build this house. And you're off playing. What is it that's not good enough about me? And then why did, why did she need someone else? But the reality that we get to see from this side is that she didn't need anyone else. She didn't need anyone else. In fact, she chose, little knock, knock on the roof. She chose God over him. She chose whatever God was doing over whatever Joseph was bringing into her life. This is a really important part of this, this text. She chooses God over her to be husband. And we should want this as well. If you're married, you should want your spouse to have God more than you. Not that you're absent, you know, God's going to take care of them, but that they would treasure God more than they would treasure you. You should want this for your friends and for your family and coworkers, that we want, we want them to have God more than they have us. But his plan was that he was ready to quietly divorce her. And since we have access to more information than Joseph did in this moment, we can see that he was going to walk away from God's work because he didn't understand. He was ready to walk away from God's work because he just didn't understand. And I'm sure you can relate to this. I'm sure you can relate to something being too hard, too strange, or too unbelievable that God could be doing. And, and you might need to take this incredible uh, step of faith into it, but you're just like, ah, I have too many questions still about this. There's no way I can do it. I'm just gonna go ahead, get the divorce, let her go off, and I'll figure out life from here on out. He would have walked away from God's work in his life. But this is the arena where faith really shines. Those unbelievable moments 
those too hard, those too strange moments. This is the arena where faith actually shines. There's Abraham. Jesus was going to come from the line of Abraham. Well, let me tell you a brief story about Abraham. Abraham waited 100 years for a promised son. Finally gets a son, and God says, I'm so glad you have your child now. Um, I want you to take your child and, and bring him up a mountain, and I want you to sacrifice that son. Probably there was an, a, a discussion around that. I can't imagine the discussion that he had with his wife. Maybe he didn't even tell her. And, uh, but he, he takes his son up the mountain. And what we find out in the Bible is that he was willing to take his son up the mountain because he believed that God was going to resurrect his son if he actually had him kill him. Now, God stopped him from doing that. He's like, no, I don't want that. Don't kill your son. I know I have your heart wild way to, to, to know that, but that's how God works, and that's how he rolls. But what we get to see in, in this instance is Abraham's faith in God shine. Unbelievable, so strange, so weird, but he's like, God, if you're doing this, I, I'll do it. I'm in, and I believe that you're even able to do the impossible in raising the dead. What I want to say to you is this. Um, don't make decisions based on yourself alone. All right, I'll say that again. Don't make decisions based on you and your wisdom alone. Yeah, like choose if you want hummus or cream cheese. Like you don't need to, you don't need to take a survey in your city group around that decision. But big decisions in life, don't do this on your own. You've been given so many ways to, to process through life. You have prayer, you can talk to God. You have community that you can talk to others. There, there's wisdom for you that God has given for you in these decisions that you are going to need to make. And I'll say this as well. Just because something could make life harder forever, just because something could make life harder forever doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. God was calling Mary and Joseph into something that was going to change the rest of their lives and make them extremely hard. But that didn't mean that they shouldn't do that. Not everything that you do and that God calls you to do in life is going to give you, you know, rainbows, unicorns, and butterflies in your soul. I, I hear people say all the time, oh, God gave me peace about that. And I'm like, well, a lot of the things that, that I've had to do in life, I don't have peace about. I don't even like it. I don't want to do it even as I'm doing it. Because you feel peace in your belly does not mean you should do it. Does it line up with scripture? Do other people around you think that this is a great idea? Or do you know without a shadow of a doubt that God is actually calling you to do this thing? Don't put the, the phrase, God led me to, God told me to, unless he actually did like Mary and Joseph. Be convinced, hey, this is with, with the information I know, I'm going to make this decision. That's a good thing to say. But don't say, God's given me peace about this. God, because maybe that's not actually from him. Maybe it's not from him. But God understands what we need. God understands what we need. Where's that music coming from? I, I'm just making sure, like, Sudafed isn't doing funny things to my mind, Right? They need to pray for me as we keep going. Um, but God understands what we need. Joseph is ready to walk away from the work of God and look at what he does. 
he comes to Joseph. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 24, it says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, didn't consummate the marriage until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You see, God can speak how he wants to us. We've already, we've already looked at some of the ways that God speaks, that, that God speaks through his word. He can speak through others. He, he was speaking to Joseph through Mary, but Joseph just didn't believe Mary in this account. Um, but here we see God actually speaking through a dream, and this was a commissioning dream. This was a dream of this is what I want you to be doing. And look at what he says to, to Joseph. He says, Joseph, son of David. This is an identity piece. You're part of the lineage that's been waiting. In essence, God is saying, Joseph, you're my man. Like, you're my man. You're part of my people, and I'm about to bring the Messiah that you've all been waiting for through your betrothed wife. Right? Like, hang on. Don't go anywhere. Burn that certificate of divorce. Hold on to this thing. You've trusted me for ages, Joseph. Thousands of years through your people. You've trusted me. So, listen to what he says next. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to to marry Mary. (laughs) Right? Don't be afraid to wed her. You see, what fear does, when fear takes over, it's a dangerous thing. Fear leads us into the war room of our life and makes us chief. We go down there like Winston Churchill, right? And we're like, what do I need to do? How am I gonna, how am I gonna do this? How am I gonna storm these beaches and bring people together? How am I gonna be in control? This is what happens when fear takes over. We move God aside and say, I know that you've been working out all these things for the millennia, but I have a really good plan in this moment. This is what fear does. It puts us in the driver's seat. It puts us as commander. But what faith does is it leads us into the prayer room, the throne room of God, and it says, hey, I'm here. I'm really weak. I don't know what to do, but I trust you. And I'm not gonna usurp your authority in this moment because I've seen you work again and again and again and again and again. And even though my gut doesn't have peace about this and I feel like this isn't gonna work out, I trust you. I'm all in. I am your servant. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find joy in this moment. I found favor with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Joseph. And, and God says, by the way, it wasn't another guy. The Holy Spirit put, son, put the son in, in Mary. And I imagine the Holy Spirit wants to, or God wants to move him quickly away from, from those details because they're not most important. They're not most important. And then he says, I want you to name the boy Jesus. This is the name Yeshua. So Jesus is like Joshua. So there's a story in the Old Testament about Joshua. And if you know the story, you know that Moses led, his, led the people of God up out of slavery in, in Egypt. And they came out. And then Moses died and didn't actually make it into the promised land that God promised his people. It was Joshua who brought the people in. 
Well, God is saying, I want you to name him Yeshua because he's going to bring my people into the better promised land. He's gonna bring my people into the promised land that will have no end. And he will deliver them, save them, rescue them from their sins. He's gonna rescue them from their sins. So let me just ask a few questions about that, that line. Who are his people? Who are the people that, that Jesus is going to rescue? Well, certainly everyone in that genealogy and certainly everyone who has believed and trusted in the work of God up to this point, but also that carries over into us. Whoever by faith has submitted and bent their knee to Jesus as king and rescuer, we're, we're here that, that Jesus came for us, that Jesus came for us, that we are not, we're, we're not this little religious subculture. We are God's people. The church is God's people connected to, to all of God's people over time. But what are the sins? He's going to save his people from their sins. And, and sins are, are, there's a whole host of definitions we could give that, but let me say it this way. Hearts, motives, Motives that are indifferent and rebellious to God. What is a sinner? Well, a sinner is a self-servant. A sinner is someone who walks away from God because they have a much better plan for their life and how to rescue themselves and take care of themselves and provide for themselves. What are the sins? Well, it's manipulating life to get the most under my tree as I possibly can. What are sins? Well, sins are anti-God tendencies that exist in all of us. And according to scripture, all of us are that. All of us are indifferent or rebellious or antagonistic to God. Therefore, we become sinners. We become sinners. But the good news for us is that this, this boy, Jesus, was sent to save us. So how would he save us? Well, he would let his people kill him. How would Jesus save his people? He would let his people kill him. Why? Because he loves us. He let his people kill him because he loves his people. See, here's the thing. We believe that Jesus wasn't just a little baby that showed up on the scene a few thousand years ago. We believe that Jesus was fully God, has always existed, and he became human. He took on human form without giving up his godness. So he was fully God and fully man. And him being fully God, he could have stopped everything. The moment that someone went to nail his hand to the cross, he could have stopped them. When he was on the cross, he could have looked at the nails and done this X-Men type thing and made them come out and healed himself and levitated off the cross, come down and say, actually, I'm in charge here. But he doesn't do that. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. There was a show, I don't even remember the name of the show, but it was a show about CEOs, and CEOs would go incognito into their workplace, and I watched one episode, and it was pretty boring, um, but it was some waste management services, and the guy who's top CEO went and had to like sort trash for the day. And the people that were working with him were like, we should fire this guy. Like, this guy's too slow. He's not good. He doesn't understand the business. We should, we should get him out. 
right? And then at the end of the day, it's like, da-da-da, CEO, and they're like, oh, my goodness, don't fire us. You know, he's like, no, now I understand my business better, blah, blah, blah. Jesus doesn't pull that card. Jesus doesn't rip off the shirt at the end and, and show how powerful he is. Rather, he allows himself to be put to death by his people. You see, here's the thing about his people is that we were so bad that he had to die, but we're so loved that he, he was glad to die. Tim Keller says that. Right? So bad that he had to die, but we're so loved that he was glad to die. Why? To make us his so that he could rescue us from sin, from the curse that's in us and, and around us. You see, and I, 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 I know some people throw a fit about Christmas trees and they reference some strange text in Jeremiah. But as I look at the Christmas tree, I often just think of the tree where, where Jesus was crucified. The, the Christmas tree points me to the better tree where he purchased eternal gifts for me. And for us, and not, not these little nicely wrapped things, but himself, that he purchased access to himself for those who crucified him. It's quite a staggering story that Jesus doesn't come to just show how amazing he is, and man, if we just would have gotten it right, we could have had him, but rather he comes to show how much he loves us, and, and he goes to the point of death to show us that. But then he doesn't stop with his death. And this is the really good news of Christmas, is that his resurrection started the melting of winter. Right? I don't like winter. Not one bit. I grew up in New England. It was freezing. And moved to Montreal. It's freezing. I don't enjoy it. I, I often think about how could we move and get out of here and go to some warmer destination. And we just can't. We can't. Like, our hearts are stuck here in Montreal. But when winter starts to melt away in March, and then we get 10 more blizzards. But then in May, it definitely almost happens, right? But definitely by June, you know, you can put away your snow pants. But, but that, when you're watching all the snow melt, it's like, Man, people are wearing T-shirts, like burning winter jackets in their backyard. Like there is this great celebration that's taking place because winter is done. And this is what the resurrection is. It's that winter is no longer going to rule. And if you remember back to Narnia, it was always winter, never Christmas. But when Aslan came, it's like, oh, we're, there are gifts that are coming as well. This isn't a figment of our imagination and Turkish delights that disappear. It's real, tangible goodness in Jesus. This is what his resurrection has procured. And Jesus came for your heart. Jesus came for your heart and for my heart. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this today? Well, my challenge is asking the question, what, what connected with you? What connected with you? As you think about Mary and the reputation that she was going to gain and the things that she was dreaming about and the things that she lost, are, are you holding on to those things? And you're like, man, God, if you asked me to do that, I just don't think that I could, I could move forward. And I'm not asking about the virgin birth, but what, what is it that, that you would have a significantly hard time giving up? What is it that if that were done to your reputation, you would just be devastated and you don't know how you would move 
on. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What in your life are you constructing because there's fear mechanisms moving in you? And the Lord says, I, I, I never asked you to go into the war room to be chief. I just asked you to trust me and let me guide you through life. Maybe this, this Advent season, the Lord says, I want to take from under your heart that fear and remove it and replace it with trust. What's connected with you? All right, do you see that you're in a process of being ready to walk away from Jesus because that thing that you think he's asking of you is just too hard and you're ready to be like Joseph and just give a certificate of divorce and leave the situation altogether? Ask him to speak to you. Ask him to speak through his word, through others, through a dream. God, would you confirm whatever it is that you're asking me to do for me? But the big idea of all this is would you receive Jesus? Would you receive him again? Would you allow for him to take his proper place of rule and reign in your life and your heart in this season? Because he came for that. He came for you. And all of your longings are really uh, for him. There's a song by uh, Noah Kahan called Hollow. It's a new song. He's not a Christian writer at all. So um, don't be mad when you're like, I listened to this and it was a horrible album. I know. Um, but it's a song, Hollow. And it talks about how I, he's like 22, 22 year old. And he wakes up in the morning, puts his shoes on, and just hopes that the 401k is going to, you know, fill the hole in his soul. And he's like, but we're all hollow. We're all hollow and nothing's going to figure, nothing's going to fill me. And it's good if you're 22 and you're figuring that out now because Jesus is saying, I want to fill you and I can complete you. I can complete you. See, Jesus came not to give us a holiday break, but to make us his forever. And he is always going to keep his promise. All the gifts you're going to give, they're going to break their promises to you. You're like, man, Apple Watch, it's going to be amazing. Six years from now, it's going to break, and Apple Care is not going to be there, and no warranty is going to be there, and even the Quebec warranty is not going to work, right? It's going to let you down. The gift that you're going to give to your friend or spouse or significant other, whatever, finally, they're going to appreciate me. That's going to lose its luster very soon, right? But Jesus, he, he won't, and he will keep his promises to you that he will never stop loving you, he will never stop pursuing you, he will keep coming after you even when you're saying, I don't know if I want any more of you. He's saying, but I'm gonna give you more of me. Um, let, me let me pray and, and we'll, we'll respond uh, this morning. But Jesus, would, would you care for, for our hearts? Holidays are, are very uh, difficult for a lot of people because even the idea of uh, being with family, uh, it brings to, to remembrance all the strife in the past. Maybe there's abuse, grief, mourning. So when it comes to, to Advent season, our eyes are fixed on all of the strangeness of our lives. We don't, we don't necessarily think about receiving you and letting you come and heal some of these places. Jesus, you know that we are a people that are so guided by fear. Fear about the future, fear about what's going to happen, uh, fear of sickness, fear of 
of COVID, fear of regulations, uh, fear, of, of, fear of ourselves. We have all these fears. I pray today you would take your, your hand, reach into our heart, and pull that fear out and replace trust. That we would, we would have our confident expectation anchored in you. Jesus, I want to pray for, for people who are here that don't yet know you. That today that they would bend their knee to you and receive you. That they would say, Jesus, I see you came for me. I see that my heart is indifferent and rebellious. And I need you. And Jesus, thank you that you will rescue them today and you'll give them new hearts and new lives, new direction. And it won't make life easier necessarily, but it will make life eternal. And you will never bail out on them. I want to pray for those of us who are just apathetic to the story. It's like, oh, of course, we're going to talk about Mary and Joseph. Of course, we're going to process through these different things. But Lord, would you get in and would you mess around with those hearts and remove the apathy and cause for deep worship to exist there? Jesus, we need you. We need you more than we need what we're going to eat for lunch. We need you more than we need heat, more than we need, um, than we need friends, more than we need security in this life. We need you. Would you overwhelm the city with your presence during this season? Would we see thousands of people come to know you during this Advent season? Would it truly be a year where, where Jesus Christ came to the city of Montreal and met many? So we love you and we need you. Amen.